0: You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the Storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome every, every, everyone to Teller from Jerusalem, and I am your host, Hanok Teller. As we have already explained, the UN voted on November 29, 1947, to partition the land allowing for a Jewish state. On May 14, 1948, Harry Truman surprised the world and caused pandemonium in the United Nations being the first one to recognize the new state of Israel. Right after he did this, Truman called his advisor on Jewish affairs, David Niles, and said, I'm telling you this before anyone else, as I know how much this will mean to you. Niles, who had already served at the same position as FDR later claimed, that had FDR lived and Truman not succeeded him, Israel would not exist. No one can say for sure what FDR would have done had he lived, but FDR had made conflicting statements and promises to both Arabs and Jews, telling them both what they wanted to hear. In fact, FDR, the quintessential politician, had made so many contradictory comments about Palestine, it was not even clear to those closest to him as to where FDR stood on the matter at the time of his death. There are many and I mean many reasons, that historians propose as to why Truman recognized Israel. I'm going to give mention only two, but there are many. The first is for humanitarian and moral reasons. This is the reason that Truman would have given, and in his memoirs he wrote, quote, "...that his chief motivation was to find a peaceful solution to a world, trouble spot, based on the desire to see promises kept and human misery relieved." The promises kept refers to the 1917 Balfour Declaration, which promised the Jews a national home in Palestine, later incorporated into the United Nations mandate granted to the British. Every single president from Woodrow Wilson on down had given their support to what FDR called the noble ideal of giving the Jews a homeland in Palestine. The platforms of both the Democratic and the Republican parties in 1944 supported a Jewish homeland in Palestine, As far as human misery is concerned, Schumann would have pointed out not just to the Holocaust, but to the appalling conditions of the survivors languishing in the DP camps. A report by Earl Harrison, a former commissioner on immigration and the then dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, wrote that the conditions in the DP camps were not at all different than the conditions of the camps under the Nazis, except they are not being murdered. He wrote about them having hideous pajamas, starvation rations, and general total neglect. Here is a direct quotation from the Harrison Report. As matters now stand, we appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. They are in concentration camps in large numbers under our military guard instead of SS troops. One is led to wonder whether the German people, seeing this, are not supposing that we are following or at least condoning Nazi policy. The second theory as to why Truman recognized Israel, and again, I prefer the former theory, but there are many theories, but we're only going to discuss two of them, was purely political. Truman simply wanted Jewish votes and contributions. This was a theory advanced by the State Department, the British Foreign Office, and several political scientists and revisionist historians. Truman contributed to this theory by complaining about the pressure put upon him, especially by New York politicians who had a large Jewish constituency. And once again, we quote, for a final time, David McCullough. Support for Jewish homeland was, of course, extremely good politics in 1948. Possibly crucial in such big states as Pennsylvania or Illinois, and especially in New York where there were 2.5 million Jews. More important even than Jewish votes to the destitute Democratic Party can be Jewish campaign contributions. Nor was there any doubt that the Republicans stood ready to do all they could for the Jewish cause and for the same reasons. But beyond the so-called, quote, Jewish vote, there was the country at large, where popular support for Jewish homeland was overwhelming. As would sometimes be forgotten, it was not just American Jews who were stirred by the prospect of a new nation for the Jewish people. It was most of America. The fact is, there was a strong Jewish constituency in the Democratic Party, and American Jews were beside themselves with grief over the revelations of the Holocaust, and now they'd been so complacent as one third of their people were murdered. Up until then, Zionism had been considered a movement of interest only to Europeans. The Jewish establishment in America deemed the establishment of a state in Israel, a Jewish state, unnecessary and possibly even dangerous, and might threaten their status as Americans and even make them suspect of having dual loyalties. But the destruction of European Jewry. It meant that American Jewry was now the largest and wealthiest Jewish community, and this was a grave responsibility. The fact that the Western democracies would not allow Jews in during the war, and even after it strengthened the resolve of American Jewry to act on behalf of the Zionist argument that Jews would only be safe when they had their own country and could defend themselves. We finished talking about Eddie Jacobson and Truman, and we're back now to the prelude to Israel's war of independence. The first stage of the fight for independence was while the British were still in Palestine and responsible for policing and welfare, and as they enforced the ban on bringing Jews into the state, and the ban on bringing weapons to the Jews, and they also had a ban on the Jews to manufacture weapons. To best understand the challenge the Jews faced at that time and in the war, it is best, almost critical, for you to consult a map where the Jews were to control 55 percent and Jerusalem was to be international as it contained holy sites of Jews, Christians, and Muslims. The very first thing you notice about the map is that the Jewish state is barely contiguous, and where the three sections meet is simply a dot on the map, and therefore it is very, very easy for the Arabs to cut off the three portions from each other and there are Arab villages and cities all along the Jewish sections making security extraordinarily challenging. The story is not just one of geography, but also of demography. In the 42% given to the Arabs, they had a clear population majority. In their area, there were 800,000 Arabs and 10,000 Jews who were to live as a minority within the Arab state. The Arabs had clear dominance over the 42% given to them. Within the Jewish state, however there were about 540,000 Jews and 400,000 Arabs that were scattered between hundreds of villages and towns, which meant that there was no secure area that was purely Jews within the Jewish state. Add to these challenges, there were 100,000 Jews in Jerusalem which were totally isolated from the other Jewish areas. The Jewish side was in a very compromised situation demographically and geographically, Manpower was also critically low, as the Jewish army was about 30,000, including women. The Arab army was also about 30,000. These are not exactly accurate numbers, because it was hard to accurately assess. But even though the armies seem about even, the Arab population in Palestine was 1.3 million, and the number of Jews was 600,000. So there was so much greater ability on the Arab side for adding additional recruits. There was also a strategic disadvantage to the Jews, for the Arab villages always tended to be on the high ground. Jewish settlements tended to be along the road, so it was relatively easy to cut off one Jewish settlement from another. If this was not enough, despite the British boycott on weapons, the Arabs could bring in weaponry overland from Syria and Lebanon in the north, Jordan in the east, and from Egypt in the south. And all these areas the Jews were at a strong disadvantage. But what they had going for them, as Dr. Dan Palisar noted, was strong leadership, high level of morale and unity, and a conviction that it was now or never. During the first Civil War phase, the situation between Israel and her enemies seemed very lopsided in the Arab favor. And then once the second phase began and Israel was now fighting Arab armies, it went to super lopsided as Israel was fighting five full armies from populous Arab states. At best, it looked like Israel as David fighting Goliath. Throughout the second and third weeks in April 1948, yet a month before the state was declared, the Arabs strove to regain control of the Tel Aviv-Jerusalem Highway. The key was control of Castel, which the Jewish fighters had liberated from the Arabs. On April 9, the Jewish defenders could hold on to the Castel no longer. Their supplies were exhausted. The last order of their platoon commander was quote, all privates will retreat and their commanders will cover their withdrawal. His command became a watchword for many future actions in the Haganah and later in the IDF. Reinforcements arriving too late could do no more than provide covering fire for the retreating soldiers. The capture of the castel was a moment of triumph for the Arab forces, and it could have marked a turning point in their military fortunes. But in the very last stage of the battle, Abdul Qader al Husseini, the Mufti's relative, was killed. He was their most celebrated battle leader, and his influence was myth like. Abdul Qader al Husseini had walked up to Haganah machine gunner, who was still at his post, whom he believed to be an Arab already in position of what he thought was a former Jewish post. The death of Abdul Qader was a psychological blow to the Arabs from which they could not recover. The various Arab leaders quarreled among themselves and had no one to guide them. When Haganah soldiers prepared to capture Castel again, they found it abandoned. Because of the fragility of the Jewish state-to-be, and how it was perceived in the United States, particularly in the State Department, Ben-Gurion understood that other dramatic actions had to be taken to show that not only could the Jews hold on, but that they would be able to repel an onslaught of multiple Arab armies. Ben-Gurion made a gutsy decision that the Jews needed to go on the offensive and start capturing Arab towns and Arab neighborhoods and mixed cities, military maneuvers that they had refrained from doing up until then. This would be the very first time that Jewish forces would serve in a non-defensive capacity. Ben-Gurion's bold decision also coincided with the fact that only 28,000 British troops were left in Palestine, about the same number as the Jewish and Arab armies but the British were also very focused on leaving. Ben-Gurion believed that the British would not intervene to stop pitched battles between the sides. At this time, the Jews were finally able to acquire smuggling weaponry from abroad, which was surplus World War II arms. In March 1948, Ben-Gurion gave instructions to the Haganah to gain control of the Hebrew state and defend its borders. So began Plan D. According to the plan, If Arab towns were strategically located or essential for communication or could be used as military bases, the Haganah would attempt to destroy the enemy's armed forces and drive that particular civilian population to areas outside the borders of the state. The very, very clear assumption was that the Arabs would only be driven out if they resisted. If they did not fight back, they could remain in their towns under Jewish sovereignty. Many Arabs fled preferring to leave rather than to live under Jewish rule. The problem of Palestinian refugees, today still far from being resolved, had begun. Mainstream historians understand that the Arabs mainly fled because their leadership had fled way before them and for a fear of advancing Jewish forces. Some Jewish leaders, including the mayor of Haifa, Abba Khushi, encouraged Indeed, he begged the Arab residents to stay in the city and not to depart. For years, they had worked side by side with their Jewish counterparts. The city's Arab residents ignored khushi and followed in the footsteps of the Arab leaders, who had fled earlier in the hope of avoiding the oncoming violence, confident that they would return later after the Jews were routed. The Jewish army went out in large numbers, was able to break, at least temporarily, the blockade of Jerusalem. Tiberias and its Arab neighborhoods were conquered in response to Arab attempts to conquer the Jewish neighborhoods, and likewise in Svat, and Jaffa, and in Arab neighborhoods in Haifa and in other key Arab towns. By mid-May 1948, Jewish forces were commanding virtually all of the areas that had been designated for them by the United Nations. It became clear that the Palestinian Arabs and their forces fighting on their side no longer had the will to fight, and 300,000 Palestinian Arabs fled the country. Jerusalem began to seesaw. On March 22nd, 1948, Arab forces successfully cut off Jerusalem from any outside Jewish settlements, and the history of Israel explained elaborates for us.
1: From November 1947 to March 1948, the Arab forces continued to increase their attacks, They had the upper hand, with thousands of volunteer fighters from surrounding Arab countries infiltrating the region. Among other things, some of these forces organized a siege of Jerusalem, trapping the 100,000 Jewish residents of the city and preventing shipments of food or supplies. The effects were devastating. The main Jewish fighting force, the Haganah, made many attempts to break through the blockade, but simply couldn't. Nearly all of its armored vehicles were destroyed, and hundreds of its fighters were killed trying to bring supplies to Jerusalem. Israelis feared the Arab forces would win, by the end of March 1948, the situation for the Jews was so desperate that the US seriously considered withdrawing its support for the UN's partition plan because they became convinced the Jews would lose against the Arabs. Meanwhile, the Arab fighters now felt they had the military strength to put an end to the partition plan and prevent a Jewish state from being established.
0: Ben-Gurion understood that time was against him and ordered the Haganah to undertake an attack of unprecedented scale. Operation Nachshon in April 1948, in which 1,500 were deployed to break through to Jerusalem, and this tipped the scales of the war. To carry out Operation Nachshon, arms were requisitioned from Haganah units throughout the country. Every Haganah operation was brought to a halt. The arms from the north were held up because of the British blockade imposed on the Haifa-Tel-Aviv road, consequential to the Gun action and Dir Yassin, which will be explained in our upcoming episode. Very few arms could be brought down by sea, and Operation Nachshon was almost called off. It was saved thanks to arms shipments that arrived from Czechoslovakia, one of the few countries that was willing to violate the international arms embargo. On the night of April 1 and 2, one of the first shipments of arms to reach Israel by air from Czechoslovakia arrived. The Haganah was able to jerry-rig an airfield in the south, Beit Daras, which had been evacuated by the British. The airfield was operational just that night only. As the DC-4 cargo plane approached, the landing strip was illuminated but for a few minutes by a series of electrical flashes. The plane included 200 rifles, 40 machine guns, and 150,000 rounds of rifle and machine gun ammunition, and they were dispersed to nearby settlements. The following morning, rumors spread that a plane had landed, and British officers returned to inspect the landing field and found nothing. The next day, Yugoslav cargo ship docked at Tel Aviv. Before the unseeing eyes of the British, Jewish dock workers unloaded a further arms cache, which had been hidden under the ship's cargo of potatoes and onions, and it, too, was spirited away. With this ship load, a further 500 rifles, 200 machine guns, and more than 5 million rounds of ammunition had reached Haganah forces. This was also part of weaponry made possible by the Czech government via a small purchasing mission Sent by Ben Gurion. These arms gave Operation Nachshon a chance of success, and the operation had been planned with the utmost care. Jewish forces were also able to conquer Tiberias, Safed, and Haifa's all important port. Ben Gurion acted just in time, and the tide of conflict began to shift. We will continue with Der Yassin Operation Nachshon, please God, in our next episode. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all teleproducts, Teller products. Books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget. You can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com